0: Success is freedom, success is peace, success is seeing the people I love, living a good life, seeing family happy, and lakes, and camping, and yoga, and goats, and horses, all that is success.
1: Welcome to the Idea Generation Podcast, a show about creative entrepreneurship. My name is Noah Callahan Bever, and each week I'll be speaking with some of the most innovative ideators in culture, and trying to figure out how they make their creative decisions. This podcast is brought to you by the good people at Shopify. Feeling that entrepreneurial itch? Turn your passion into a business with Shopify. They've got everything you need to start, run, or grow your business. Check out shopify.com slash idea to learn more. Toronto native Jessie Reyes always knew that grit and perseverance were the key to success. Growing up, she watched her parents work multiple jobs to make ends meet. They also provided a musical household, as her father and her cousins all played guitar. Though she didn't know it yet, soon Reyes was going to meld all of these influences together and emerge as a musical Swiss army knife who could sing, produce, and write all on her own. How did your parents' professional life inform your creative ambitions?
0: Watching them hustle as hard as they did, watching them... Work two jobs all the time, watching them create hustles like paint and learn how to do ceramic and brush off my complaints about people making fun of my four-stripe shoe because it was not an Adidas and then telling me that shoe does the exact same thing and saying thank you God every time that we were going to eat. Just little things like that made me so appreciative of what I now know and what I later learned was the norm for a lot of kids growing up. It just wasn't the norm. For me and for a lot of kids that grow up in immigrant families, like it's just, it's just a lot tougher. It's a lot different. It just made me more of a fucking hustler. Made me more willing to grind, more willing to find a way when it didn't seem like there was a way, and more willing to work my ass off.
1: Your mom worked in child care. What kind of work did your dad do?
0: My mom did babysitting, so we lived upstairs, and the downstairs was like a daycare. She helped my dad all the time. My dad did, like, tool and dye. Also did ceramic and also painted houses and also made Colombian candy called manjar blanco and would sell it individually. We would make oleas. Everything. Everything and anything they would do, you know? And my mom would help, like, all those side jobs. My mom would be helping. My mom sold bananas for a while, too. My mom cleaned a lot. Actually, the first building we lived in, she was a cleaning lady in that building. And then even when she was babysitting, we'd still take side jobs just cleaning. And then my dad would go and help her. Like, they would help each other all the time.
1: Did you have anyone in your sort of immediate circle growing up that had creative pursuits in a professional way?
0: My dad always played guitar at the crib. And my cousins did as well. Like, my cousin Martin was also nice at the guitar. But it was more so just, like, vibes. Like, I don't think they were doing auditions or busking and shit like I was, but... Yeah, more so just a vibe.
1: And when did you start writing songs?
0: I started writing songs in elementary school, but they started more so as poems, and then they were shitty songs. And the first time I ever saw someone have a reaction to a song of mine was in high school. It was like after the first time I got my heart broken, and I was incapable of being in class or incapable of being in the calf because everything would just make me cry. So I would spend a lot of my time in the music room My girl, Mona, who's actually having a baby, I just came back from a baby shower. She came to the music room with me and I showed her a song and she was like, holy shit, dude. It was just the first time someone had been giving me the holy shit response.
1: How did you even know how to write a record or how to write a song?
0: I guess I studied it, not knowing I was studying it. Like listening to so copious amounts of Destiny's Child and in an effort to learn the lyrics, going to like my one cousin's house that had internet at the time and like researching the lyrics there and... And writing them out because they didn't have a printer and just being able to have them to know I was doing them right, you know? I think by default it taught me how, just because I was trying to retain and learn how to sing the song, then I started understanding like what a verse was, what a chorus was, what a bridge was. But I wasn't in an effort to seek out the education on how to do it. It was just by default because I appreciated the art so much that it just imprinted on me.
1: Were your parents supportive of you pursuing music as a more serious activity and hobby?
0: They were scared, but they were supportive. But they were concerned, especially because I would put myself in not the safest situations. Like there was a lot of meeting up with people online that had like studio closets too and similar aspirations. And there was a lot of fucking auditions. And sometimes I'd have to go alone, but sometimes, you know, my mom would come too or my dad would come too, but there was a lot of that. And it's obviously not the safest or whole, most wholesome industry that there is. So they were concerned. And my brother's like a genius. He's a teacher. He's a scientist. And like Just very educated. And I obviously was leaning away from school. So they were concerned about that too. But what's nice is my mom at one point, she encouraged me to go to school for it. And I was like so trained into thinking that it needed to be a plan B that I couldn't even consider it as a plan A to justify going into debt for something that wasn't even a short shot in my mind, but she was, it was just really sweet. And it's not like we had the money to go into it either, but she was just, you know, down. And I was the one that was like, I don't think that's the vibe. I don't think it's the move. At that point I was learning that I was like, it's not what you know, it's who you know, it's relationships." So it didn't really make sense to me. And I also didn't want to take their money. I ended up taking a year off, was supposed to be a year off, but I ended up taking a year off to work, to make money, to be able to use that money, to go in for school for like English or something.
1: What gave you the confidence in high school to want to like start going on auditions and put yourself out there in that way?
0: I don't know. I just did it. I just did it. I just went for it. And they sometimes they were rough. Sometimes it was very much giving. Don't call us, we'll call you. You know. So it could have done a lot to my confidence real quick. But what's nice is one of the times I went in and I. I had just started playing guitar Consist, I'd played before, but I was playing it more consistently. And I did a cover and I did like, I'm going down by Mary. And I was so nervous in the audition that they were like, Okay, like, do you listen to a lot of like that song? Like, why did you do it? And I was like, I just love Lauren so much. Like, nerves. Obviously, I know the fucking difference. Obviously, like, I loved Lauren at that point. Like, it was just rough, and I felt like such an idiot because I heard it as soon as it came out of my mouth, and I walked out of there defeated because I feel like I had just shifted. That was just rough. And one guy ran out, and he's like, Hey, listen, I know that was a little rough, but I feel like you have a lot of potential in your voice, like would love to like work with you and that's one of the first vocal coaches that i worked with so maybe it was doing it and failing and still being able to find little nuggets that ended up being like the first bricks to build me up i realized that early on i think so it made me less afraid of trying shit that i had a good chance of fucking up I learned early on that you just can't let the fear win. You can't let the audience win. You can't let the doubt win. Especially for going up for like auditions or as an opener, it's so nerve-wracking to go on stage. I just learned that I'm like, I can't let them win. I can't let them win. I can't let not even them, just that energy.
1: Her confidence was growing and Reyes started attending open mics to showcase her budding skills. Over the next few years, her family moved all over the greater Toronto area, and Reyes became familiar with various parts of the city's musical scene. But eventually, her family's long-in-the-works visa came through, and she relocated to Florida. Reyes saw it as an opportunity to switch up her surroundings and get a fresh start closer to the American entertainment industry. What did you think when you got up for those first open mics and you have 100 people or 200 people just sort of blankly.
0: I wish a hundred people, two hundred more, like twenty, okay. more like fifteen on a good day. But
1: does that make it easier?
0: Now it makes it worse. At that time, I didn't know. I couldn't compare because I hadn't ever had the experience of like a full room, or you know. Yeah. So I didn't know. But yes, it makes it worse to be able to like look into the eyes of whoever is listening or judging or taking in or whatever. Yes, it makes it more nerve-wracking. But I was nervous, but I just did it anyway. I was doing anything and everything to push that forward because I just it just music was always home you know so if I could find my footing I just felt like everything would make sense.
1: Did you have a sense at that time what kind of music you wanted to make?
0: Nope I was just creating I didn't. I've always had a really eclectic palette because my parents and Cumbia and Salsa and my brother bringing home Reggae and then discovering Bob Marley and Tanya Stephens and Barrington and then Biggie and Pac and amy what amy brought to my life and then going backwards into soul with otis and with sam and it's a big mix and i think that that's why my shit is so eclectic Mm -hmm. but i didn't at that time i didn't know at that time i was still i'm still but just absorbing everything
1: what was the goal in that moment in your head
0: forward anything any audition any collaboration any opportunity anything anything my parents like the way that they moved and God's grace to have given me that like bit of gasoline because now I can articulate what it is I can articulate like it's failing faster it's it's projecting that sort of energy so the universe gives it back to you it's you know all those things but when I was that small I had no idea what the fuck I was doing and I'm so happy that I did it anyway from wherever the fuck. influence came from but it was anything and everything and people would be like holy shit.
1: This is going on while you're still living in Toronto the first
0: time? Toronto, Brampton, and then like it was like downtown. I moved all over the GTA, all over Keelan Shepherd.
1: But eventually you end up relocating to Florida.
0: I ended up in Florida, yeah. My dad had never wanted to settle in Canada but at the time it was easier to get papers for Canada than it was for the States. So their plan was always get the papers, get it figured out and then go to Florida. But then some shit went down. It just made it more difficult to get papers for my pops. And then we had to do a different method and I got, we got sponsored by my aunt. It took like 16 years to get it legally approved and everything ready to go. And then he was like, it's a family visa. So, you know, at that point I was grown and he was like, if you want to come, come. And I remember I had like a Raptors cheerleading audition. I told him, I was like, if I don't make it, I'll come. And if I make it, I'm staying. And I made fourth round cuts, like three round cuts and then fourth round cut. They were like, they sent everybody home and took five girls from the last bunch. And then they hit us with a for the last spot, we want you guys to campaign. And I was like, nope, sorry, this is a sign. If it didn't come naturally and I have to do this, then maybe it's a sign that I'm supposed to be in Florida. But on top of that, like, and I'm a Raptors fan, so I've been a Raptors fan since I was tiny. But I took it as a sign that I was like, maybe it's not the vibe. And I already had the experience as a professional cheerleader with like Argonauts and the CFL and stuff. I graduated and it had been a little over the year for the year off for college. And my parents are getting more and more nervous because it don't look like I'm going back to school. And I was working bottle service on Richmond. And I was working receptionist at this gym. It was like our valleys, this gym called Good Life Fitness. And then I was teaching Zumba, like dance and shit. And then I was doing cheerleading all that, and then still doing like random internet link-ups and sessions and open mics and stuff, but at the gym, this lady, who was mad cool, she came in, and I was reception, so I always like greet her, and she's like, I brought my sister today, and I was like, cool. And I'm trying to get my PT license, my personal trainer's license as I'm doing all this shit. And she's like, this is my sister, and she goes to talk to her trainer, and her sister's chatting me up, and she's like, you sing? And I was like, yeah, I do. She was like, You got to leave. And I was like, what? She's like, you can't stay in the city. Like, you got to get out. You got to leave. And I was like, what? She was like, it's not going to happen unless you leave. You got to leave. And I was like, okay. Like, it was kind of strange. And then she left and the member of the gym came back and she was like, what did my sister say? And I was like, no one knows, by the way. At that point in my life, I'm so shy that at these open mics and anytime I sing, my eyes are closed. And anytime someone asks to hear me sing, like, God forbid, if you asked me to sing, I'd make everyone in the room shut their eyes because I couldn't deal with the nerves. And so no one knows. No one knows. Apart from like whoever comes with me to know mics, no one knows I sing. So I'm like, she knew I sang. And she was like, oh, you sing? And I was like, yeah. She's like, what else did she say? And I told her and she was like, you should heed her advice. And I was like, why? And she was like, she used to be a psychic, but she found that so often people would just inquire about financial, monetary, fucking globe. Just things like that that made her feel sick and or like partner cheating. It was just dark and she was like she was over it. So she only worked with animals now, strictly animals. But she said when she met someone and felt something intensely, she would tell them. And I was like, holy shit. So that on top of not getting the audition right away, I was like, maybe this is God showing me the I'm supposed to bounce. So I bounced.
1: Ray has worked a number of service gigs and odd jobs to support herself but music remained her North Star. However, despite her efforts, the connections she was making were going nowhere, at least nowhere good. So when an opportunity presented itself to return to Toronto, she jumped back to the north side of the border. Is there anything that came out of those experiences of working desk job, day jobs, that you feel like is important to your career today?
0: Realizing I hated it. Realizing that I had no other option. I got fired from that gym. I got fired from our deans. I got fired from Sobeys, which is like our Publix. I got fired from a lot because I didn't really like just the feeling of being constricted. Even when it comes to uniforms, I just am not the best at it. It's something I've learned to have more decorum with truth. But at the time, I had none. So bluntness isn't always appreciated in office settings. So it didn't really work to my favor. It taught me that like I just didn't have another option. It was always music. I don't know if I was looking for relief of problems. I was just looking to get home. And nothing else felt right. When I worked at the bar, it was me bringing CDs to hand off to the DJ. When I worked at Cheer and we were doing an event, it was me having CDs in between my pom-poms ready to give off to somebody if I I saw an executive head walk by or someone at a label at a universal party just to hand it off, included in whatever it was that I was doing, whether I got fired or not, like putting music at the gym if I could slide in one of my songs, like things like that, you know? That's why I think it was divine. That's why I think it was God. I think it was prayer for it to have been so... Like, just deep in me, just early on, just there. It's crazy. I guess I've never consciously thought about it to have had that sort of conviction so young without any sort of proof, any sort of viable proof to, like, argue to somebody that I know what I'm doing because I sure as fuck didn't. You know? It was just a shot in the dark. But, yeah, my parents and God.
1: And I understand you had a very interesting, unorthodox way of soliciting attention for your music on Twitter.
0: That was my homegirl's idea. When this guy I used to be friends with in high school, knew that like Elangelo's Twitter, Doc's Twitter. And so I would post these covers and then the title would be like, The Weekend, like Cop with Stripper. And then like Doc McKinney, like soliciting prostitute and all this shit. Because I know that people want to look at a fire. So I was like, perfect. This is great. This is before Florida. I don't know if it's high. It might have been like end of high school, but before Florida. The year... Before I left to Florida, I ended up meeting Jive, who's one of my best friends. And Jive introduced me to this guy named Stuntman, and Stuntman introduced me to Doc. And when I went in with Doc, Stuntman was like, i play something. And I was like, bet. So I took it, and I played. And then Doc was like, I've heard your shit. And I was like, what? He was like... On Twitter, and I was like, oh no. So, like, I had to like address it face to face, and I was like, that's why I did it, because while well, he started laughing. <laughs> but, Elangelo had sent it to Doc, because Elangelo had seen the fuckery tweet. It's funny, too, because I was doing shit at the time that now, after reading like business books and self development, more so business books, but understanding the importance of going to places to network is not just off a one off. Like, it has to be consistent, because sometimes it's more so like the familiarity. Like, if someone sees you at the same event, twice or three times there's more of a willingness to open up especially if someone's in a position of power or someone's successful where they're used to being pitched shit all the time there's less of openness to be willing to like collaborate on something new but if someone becomes familiar with your face they're more inclined you know so it was just funny to look back and be like oh I was doing that then and I didn't even realize I was doing it
1: so you end up moving to Florida does that immediately resolve or relieve any of these problems or change anything
0: no not at all I started bartending in Florida and I didn't have my papers set up yet. I had to just figure it out, but they were looking for like dancing bartenders and luckily, because I used to dance in Toronto, I was like, sick, I got this. And I learned as I went and then same thing, like friending up the DJs and trying to get someone to play my song, which sometimes they did. And I worked at Gloria Stefan's club in Fort Lauderdale, this club called Bongos. I worked at a few different clubs, but um, in Florida is actually where the gatekeeper thing happened to me early on. And Florida is also where I had that moment of clarity when I was cleaning my apartment, when I heard that BJ song. In Florida is where I ended up connecting like long distance with one of my first managers. It's funny cause it's almost like I had to leave Toronto to be more hungry and appreciate the community that I had cultivated back home doing open mics, doing all those things. Because in Florida, it was like starting from scratch. And it was even harder because the culture there didn't lean into what I was like, I'm soul, guitar, I'm mutt, you know? Whereas at that time in Florida, it was like, drugs, club, woo! And it wasn't really me. Like, shout out to Jive and shout out to Doc McKinney, who was one of the weakest producers at the time. Jive was working with someone that introduced me to him. And then we ended up staying in contact And I was on a Skype call with him complaining about how fucking tedious things had gotten in Florida. And how hard it was to get producers to send me beats. And how hard it was to get people who were doing music half-assed to like match my energy. And he let me rail off and then finally he was like, are you done? And I was like, yes. And he was like, you need to do what you can where you are with whatever you got. You need to just keep doing that because you're going to force anyone around you to carry that same energy. And then that day, I linked with a homie who knew a homie in Florida who had a camera. And I was like, I got this demo. Let's go shoot a video. And I just started pushing shit. And then one of my managers saw that video online and was like, oh, this is kind of dope. The video kind of sucks, but the music is lit because he was in video production. And he was like, "This is there's something called the Remix Project in Toronto. And the Remix Project changed my fucking life. It's a free music program for kids that don't have fucking access to studio or access to a bunch of shit and he was like you should come by just audition you know it's worth it and so i got like a 50 flight on spirit airlines begged my bar manager for the weekend off flew back home did it and then i got in being in there for those nine months shifted a lot of shit too because it introduced me to the like to mentorship And mentorship changes everything because this whole time, my whole life, like these dreams seem so fucking far removed. They're on a screen. As much faith as I have, I haven't ever met someone that was living off of their art, you know? Everything was shows, TVs, music videos, but awake. But... At that program, they'd have people come in and speak that had done it. And having someone in front of you that's like, oh shit, your skin looks like mine. You bleed just like me. You breathe just like me and you're able to do it. It made everything so much more attainable. And then also watching everyone around me. You end up bagging who has the same hustle and who doesn't. And then it's reflective in how life responds to you. Because when you work hard, I believe that life, like, you know, cause and effect. You reap what you sow. And it also gave me a lifelong friend who's Moose, who's one of my engineers, and produced half of uh, Mood as well. We were in that program together years ago, which is crazy, a minute ago.
1: You mentioned the incident that inspired Gatekeeper, and obviously that ultimately yielded an incredible moment of creativity for you. In the moment, though, did it demoralize you did it take you out of your zone
0: yeah of course of course it made me put the guitar in the corner and look at it like a foreign object it made me not want to touch it it made me reconsider if I was chasing the right thing because the things that were said could have crushed anybody It was said in such a lackadaisical, nonchalant way that I thought, holy fuck, if this is it and if this is the norm and if this is what women have to do, then maybe I'm in the wrong industry because I'm not trying to do that. So I might just have to quit if I can't do it, you know? It made me not touch the guitar for a minute.
1: Was there a catalyst that got you back sort of into music?
0: I can't remember because it was all around the same time, like that conversation with Doc and having that music video out and all those things. But it might have just been me. Time can just soothe you a little bit more, but it definitely took me a second to pick the guitar back up and be like, I'm not gonna let this make me quit. If I've fucking gone through all the other shit that I've gone through and all the auditions and all the interviews, for one night to be the night that makes me quit ain't really the vibe.
1: You're now in the remix project working with these guys and you end up having a very unlikely collaboration with King Louis. Tell me about how did you develop that relationship, and how did it yield those two very interesting records?
0: I love him to death. I walked into the studio that day, like I walked into Remix, and the studio was full. But I definitely knew the importance of walking in and like being present, you know, and introducing yourself. And sometimes people who deal with social anxiety, sometimes in the past i feel like hesitant to not want to introduce myself first, or shy, or whatever you want to call it, but I was working on it then, and I walked in, and the studio was full, and I didn't want to interrupt, so I was just like, hello, hello to everybody, whatever. He shook his hands and then left. And Gav was in there. Gavin Shepard's one of the co-founders of Remix. I don't know what, if that was the catalyst that like triggered him into suggesting putting on my song, or if he had thought about it before. I don't know. But I left, and then he threw on one of my records because they were playing like the participants' music. And I had this song called Statuses that Moose produced it. And so he walks out, and he's like, you wrote that? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, that's about Subtweets. And I was like, yeah, he was like, that's dope. His manager came up to me, Doe, who Doe I love too. And Doe was like, yo, Louis loves your shit. He wants to work, pull up to the studio after. And I was like, bet, let's do it. And so then a few hours passed and then we find out that they couldn't book a studio. And so we're going to somebody's condo in downtown. And then when we get there, we find out that they've invited a bunch of people. So it's me, it's Wonder Girl, it's Redway West in Peace, who was a great Toronto artist as well. Sean Leon hit, but I think it was Ricardo's condo, Doc McKinney pulled up, Spooky Black was there, like it was a full fucking condo. And everyone there is equipped with beats, you know, equipped with shit. And it's me and my guitar and my nerves and Mauricio, my first manager. And I'm like fucking nervous. And I'm sitting there stuck in indecision, not knowing what to do. And I'm like, fuck, 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 fuck. You can't waste this opportunity. You can't waste it. Just like cacophony of... Sentences like bouncing back and forth inside my brain, and finally I'm like, you can't let it waste, you can't let it, you can't let it pass. Like this was given, so I just burst out. I'm like, you want to jam? <laughs> and he's like, what? And I was like, you want to jam? Like we can go out to like, you know, we we could just jam. We could jam on the balcony because people are playing beats, and he was like, all right, bet, let's go. And so he goes and he starts rolling up in the balcony, and then I start finding these chords, and then Living in the Sky was born in the balcony of that Toronto condo, and then. He's like, this is lit, like, send it to me. And I was like, bet. And I'm a few months into Remix, finally finding my way around Pro Tools. And we were so hungry, so fucking amped. You know what's funny? We went downstairs after that session, actually, beforehand. And that was the first time that me and Mauricio had looked at each other and we were like, so we're doing this? Because he wasn't a manager, he didn't know shit about managing.
1: This whole time, you have no manager, you're navigating all of this by yeah, yourself?
0: Yeah, and Mauricio is the one who told me about Remix project But he had fallen into the role of manager, you know, inadvertently by bringing me there. And then it was that moment over some wings, in the wing spot next to that condo, it was literally that sentence, like, so we're doing this. Because of Remix, I knew how to work Pro Tools, so then they were able to get me a studio last minute, and then I engineered that shit by myself. Produced the front half of that shit by myself, did my vocals by myself, and then sent it that night because I understand the power of momentum. And I was like, if King Louis said now and he's down and he's excited now, you got to strike while the iron's hot. Send that shit tonight. So I did it and then I sent it. And then a few days later, he sent it back with his verse. And then we gave it to Moose and Moose made that beautiful outro to it. And the rest is history, man. He's just shown so much love, been so consistent, pulled up to shows, has looked out for me. My parents love him. He's great, and I owe him a lot. And Chicago was one of the first places in the States to fuck with me, particularly because of that song. And because of Louie. I didn't understand what I understand now, which is you have to take advantage of the momentum because it's not like we had anything packed behind that song. We were going one and then taking time and then one, but there's so much to be said for having your gun full of bullets ready to go, you know, because then you take advantage of the momentum.
1: With momentum building from her King Louis collaboration and a manager officially by her side, Rhea started to gain some legitimate buzz in the music industry. She continued to release more music independently on SoundCloud and both the audience and the co-signs followed. Soon, labels were knocking at her door. Have you ever had a big idea but lacked the tools to implement it? Look no further than Shopify. Shopify is the brand that powers all your favorite clothing, beauty, and sneaker brands and offers the best-in-class commerce tools to allow you to sell online, in-person, and on all major social platforms. Shopify fuels millions of entrepreneurs and turns ambition into action. Check out shopify.com slash idea to learn more. Now back to the story. You find your manager. You guys decide you're going to work together as a team. He has no experience in this. You are relatively new to all of this as well. What's the action steps for day one.
0: Throwing shit to the wall. Shit started to get a little hectic. And he obviously didn't know what he was doing either. And he had a friend in L.A., who he used to do videos for his artist named Sunreal, And his friend in LA would like be a sounding board anytime that he was confused about something. He'd ask him for advice, So Mauricio would ask Byron for advice. I think busy, so Byron is busy. Biz ended up showing Jeremiah Thomas, one of my songs, and Jeremiah Thomas worked at BMG. But things started getting mixed, like... Excitement started to come around my name.
1: When you say excitement started to come around, what are the things that you're witnessing happen that you start to feel like? Holy shit. Yeah.
0: a DM from Calvin Harris.
1: Well, that's a pretty big deal.
0: Yeah. a DM from Calvin Harris, and he's the one who was able to like articulate it because he messaged me and he was like, hey, I heard your shit. People in the city are really excited about you. I thought you should know.
1: And how did your music end up on his radar?
0: I have no idea, you know, I've never asked him that. I think he just saw figures, but I never knew how he saw figures. So shit got hectic, shit got busy. There was just a lot to handle and we needed more help. And Busy got involved. And Biz who had shown Jermai, Jermai ended up peaking interest in BMG. And BMG was like, all right, we want to sign you as a writer, which is crazy. Cause like based off of strength, cause I didn't have any credits. I didn't have any, no reason to merit the check that they were trying to offer and I at the time and still deal with paranoia and especially because I was so green the fear was taking over and so I didn't want to sign shit I was so scared but it worked on my benefit but I didn't want to sign shit so they courted me for nine months Jeremiah just wouldn't let up they sent me to Sweden to write off of strength because I'm not signed to anybody so they're just buying flights for someone that's like not even tied, not even loyal, nothing. This is before Figures. This okay. is just me. This is living in the sky. This is me doing like, you know, the SoundCloud shit with the guys and everything.
1: How many plays are your songs getting on SoundCloud at this point? Not a lot. Like, like hundreds or I, low
0: thousands? I don't know. Okay. I think, I feel like thousands will get me hype. It was like <laughs> maybe like t- a thousand or two thousand and I was so fucking stoked. But they sent me their... I write figures and then BMG throws the check and we make it happen and that was the first like real check that I had for music was my publishing. So I started as a writer, technically.
1: At what point do you start getting solicited by labels?
0: After figures.
1: Okay. So you put that on SoundCloud and does it just naturally start to move?
0: Yeah, it was wild. The numbers started shooting up and it was happening organically. I feel like we did five thousand in a day and we were all like, holy shit. And then the next day we were at the Mad Rock offices. And I remember the guys being like, our emails are fucked, fucked. Like shit was just flooding up, flooding up. I feel like that was the tipping point.
1: So how did the courting process go with all of the labels?
0: It was a bidding war. And it was a lot of tasty-ass dinners, a lot of meeting execs, but it also revealed a lot of genuine relationships and vice versa because I made it a point... After we had done all the schmoozing and dinners and meetings and everything, once we had made the decision, I said I felt fucked up if it was just the guys calling them to tell them she made this choice. I felt like it had to be me. I felt like it was the easy way out not to do it. And there was something to be said for enough respect to call someone that's given you time and flown you out and all these things to be like, listen, thank you, but right now this. And so I did it and it's fucking crazy. I can. there was a lot of people at the table a lot of people in that bidding war, and I can count on my hand the people who stayed down about it. A lot of people think I'm signed to Rock Nation. A lot of times like I go in for meetings and they're like, oh, your management's rocking Nation. I'm like, like, labels, I'm like, no, it's just love. It's just love. Like they were one of the few that didn't switch up there. Like, you know what? It's cool. Like Business is visible, we got love for you still, and it's it's just mad love. It served its purpose, that era.
1: What were the variables that you were sort of weighing in your head as you're being courted by all these different labels?
0: Who else is on their roster? What they've been able to do? How diverse their roster is? How many people they have on their staff? How much marketing budget they're willing to give me? What the deal actually looks like in terms of how many songs, how many albums, in terms of masters and all that shit and advance, obviously. And energy, energy and freedom. Understanding freedom because we were very self-sufficient We still are. I'm fortunate that we are that way. But it was a matter of finding the right team to partner with that was going to respect what we had and not want to throw in extra ingredients, just give us the money and let us do it, you know? So that's what we got. So Jeremiah Thomas has been at BMG for years now. He's the first person to ever fly me out to L.A. He's the first person to ever give me like... My first check was actually from Queen and Spadina at this place called Dreamhouse. 250 bucks. I sold the song and I was floored. And I bought groceries that day and it was just... Brought it home to my mom and I was like, check this out. Like it was the first time that they had seen a check from music. That was the first one. But the second one, the significant one that altered my life a lot was from Jeremiah at BMG. So at that time when we were looking for labels, Jeremiah is leaving BMG. He's not decided that he's leaving. And so these labels that are all bidding for me all find out and they're like, huh. and so then now everyone's trying to offer him a job because everyone assumes rightly so that they're like, this is her dude. This has been her dude for now, like a minute, like he's been riding. It was probably going to affect her decision. So then when we found out it was Island, I was like, everyone's been mad dope, but this is my guy. And this guy's like, He bet on me when he didn't have to. He bet on me when there was no reason to, outside of just a gut. He was willing to bet, like, his employment. Imagine, like, spending that much money on someone that's not even signed to your company yet, which I know is part of their job, but nine months is a little excessive, and he was still down, you know? So anyways, when I found out he was going to Highland, I was like, fuck, it just makes sense.
1: Having an advocate in the building makes a huge difference for an artist. Did you have the whole album completed at that point? Kiddo was done. Okay.
0: Kiddo was done. That's why it was important to get someone that just understood. We just need respect. Just respect. Don't fuck with our shit. Just let us go. Kiddo was done.
1: And did they do that? There was no meddling?
0: No, man. It was great. It was great. Really fortunate. Really, at the time, the guy there was David Massey.
1: Obviously, Island has gone through several presidents in the time that you've been there. As an artist on a label, does that affect you at all?
0: It would affect me if I didn't have a good team. If I didn't have a team that I could rely on, I'd be fucking scared and I might be fucked. But... Luckily, we came in very self-sufficient. We came in strong, so I'm fortunate. I could be fucked. Success also helped, but I feel like I owe a lot of it to my team, not letting shit crumble even when shit in the building changes.
1: Though there was uncertainty at the top of her label, Island Records, Reyes didn't let the changing of the guard affect her vision. Still, tough times completely out of her control lay ahead. Just as Reyes prepared to launch her major label debut, she landed one of her biggest looks yet an opening spot on Billie Eilish's world tour. However, the global pandemic had its own ideas, derailing the March 2020 tour after just one week. In retrospect now, what do you think the most important things that Kiddo did for you professionally?
0: Changed my life, allowed me to live off of my work, allowed me to give hope to my parents that I was doing the right thing. My mom apologized to me, which is wild. I don't even remember this conversation because my mom's always been so supportive, but she goes, I'm sorry. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? She's like, a year and a half ago, she had told me, mija, maybe it's not for you. Cause I had done so much time and so much years and so much time outside of school and so many sacrifices, so much work. She was like, Miha, maybe it's not for you. And she says, I told her, just give me another year. Which is crazy, because it seems like something you'd remember, especially coming from such a supportive mom. But I don't remember that at all. At all. And she wholeheartedly, sincerely apologized, because a year and change later, everything popped off. She's the best. Like, my mom mom's a saint, so it's just insane for her to even have felt that. It was just a joke.
1: So you, you put out Kiddo. It's a very successful EP. You have both hit records and also cultural moments like Gatekeeper on there that really sort of set you apart from everything else that's happening in music. But then there's about three years between that and when you finally put out your first album. How were you changing? How were you growing? How was your thinking about your career evolving during that period?
0: The... So Kiddo and then Being Human in Public was the second EP. Oh yes, that's right. That was the second EP. And then that album. But I just changed a lot. But I was still very dark. Like there's a lot of darkness in those first three projects. I was just growing. I was just living life. Getting my heart broken. Surviving. Being very
1: candid about it.
0: Yeah, being very candid about it. I was just living life.
1: Your first album comes out at a very inauspicious moment in world history. (laughs) Leading up to it, you go out on tour with Billie Eilish yeah. and perform two dates uh, right before a global pandemic shuts down literally everything. Yeah. Ending the tour and also I would imagine the promo run for the album that you're about to drop two weeks later. hmm Take me through those week and a half, two weeks. That, you know, what other conversations that you're having with the label, with your team, with Billie's team?
0: Everyone was in disbelief. Like, everybody was like, what the hell? But I feel like half the world was, you know? I mean, shit, everyone was like, no way, come on. <laughs> I was ready to pull it. I was ready to cancel the album. And then I don't know what I was thinking. I should have known that this was going to be the answer, but I put it online. Because I was like, wait, I want to see if people, you know, understand that we should hold it back. And then everyone, it was like a resounding, like, are you dumb? Put this out. And so we did it. And and it was scary because then we were just pretty much the guinea pigs for putting out a project in the beginning of what was going to be a fucking long ass pandemic. But at the time, we didn't know. But it was nerve-wracking and it was also weird because the ideas and the song, the the messages, the meanings, a lot of the songs had to do with mortality. Mm -hmm. Like after they were made, when we were compiling the album and I'm looking at it, I'm like, oh, it's a catalyst for people to think about their mortality. But now or at the time that the state of the world was just in shambles and it was the apocalypse, it just seemed like all these songs called Coffin and Kill Us seemed more like theme songs to the end of the world as opposed to a catalyst for thought of mortality. So it just shifted the way that it was, the content versus context was mangled.
1: Did you feel like it was received differently because of Of
0: course, of course. I think it was Basquiat that said that if art decorates walls and music decorates time, who the fuck was making memories there It was stuck inside their houses? You know what I mean? It was just weird. It was different. This project feels more like my first than anything because it's the first time I'm actually like able to do everything properly. You know, God willing. God willing. Because <laughs> it's only been a week. But God willing. But it was weird. It was rough. And I wasn't in the best place mentally. I was also in a dark place, so it didn't help. The only positive thing about it was doing interviews at home (laughs) with no pants on. It was great. I loved it.
1: What did you do during the quarantine?
0: Suffer, like a lot of the world. Get more lost in depression. But then I got so low that it got to a point that I was like, oh, it's you heal or die. You sink or swim. It got dark. Started putting in the effort. And I picked up The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. And I feel like it shifted me as a, as a person, as a woman, as an artist. It shifted everything. Mm, and I started just putting in time. I did this thing called Deepak Chopra's 21 Day Abundance Meditation that I feel like also deeply shifted me, made me more aware of things, made me more aware of like just having presence and just life, just approaching life differently.
1: You chased this dream for a decade. You have huge hit records. You have toured multiple EPs under your belt and you're depressed, was that tension hard to wrap your head around?
0: At the time, yeah, because I couldn't talk to anybody about it because you end up looking like a brat. No one wants to hear a rich bitch complain. The fuck? I couldn't really talk about it. I was aware of it, so if I'm aware of it, I can only imagine how it would have been perceived. You know what I mean? So I tried to keep it to myself, but it was easy to do it within my bedroom. It was easier to keep it under wraps. But it was hard. But I was aware of like the irony of it all. Like your dreams are coming true and you're here crying over a broken heart that's like all encompassing everything. No, because that's not all of life. But when you're in the deep end, you don't really want to hear somebody say swim if you can't swim. And I couldn't swim yet. I couldn't swim yet. But then all that work, I feel like, just made a big difference and actively still like there's things that I still apply that like help me every day from those books and from those workshops and from therapy and from meditating and yoga and prayer eating better eating healthy being aware of my physical health becoming my own best friend to like know that I can't work myself to the ground because if I'm not okay the whole team is fucked so making sure that I'm okay
1: Determined to take better care of herself Ray has put in the work to ensure that her mental health was a priority and it paid dividends quickly with a more positive approach to her music and clear, fulfilling goals in mind, Ray has set off into the most exciting chapter of her career yet. With a new record, how do you feel like your process has changed or evolved from the stuff that you're doing in you know, 2017, 2018?
0: I've gotten more willing to beat something to death. Whereas before, I'd be more inclined to lean towards the rawness. It's nice, too, because it's just made me rely more on my intuition. Because before, I had the safety net of saying, no, 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 rawness is better. Rawness is king. So let's stay as close to the demo version as possible. But sometimes that's demoitis. Demoitis is when you just fall too in love with the first version. So it's different because... Now that I don't have that safety, it's given more freedom, but also it's given my intuition more responsibility because now when there's like 22 versions, you can't be hesitant just because you've done all that work if you intuitively feel that like V3 was the one, regardless of how many musicians have touched it, how many layers, how much studio time, all this shit, it just comes down to know intuitively I think this is the one, you know, or vice versa. You might have to get to version 60 to make sure it's right. So I've changed my approach that way. We've just become more willing to turn over every rock.
1: Do you see big changes in how you are articulating things or how you're thinking about songs or how you're thinking about expressing yourself?
0: Yeah, man. I feel like there are more positive moments. The toxic ones are still there, very prevalent sometimes, but there's more positive ones that weren't there before. There's more openness to love, more willingness to be vulnerable. Whereas in the past, I was more so coming from a place of fear because i would gotten so fucked so often when it came to love. And then fucked in the remnants, like fucked in the ruins because I couldn't even deal with a broken heart. I didn't know how to fix myself. I didn't know how to heal properly. I didn't know any of that. And during these last two years, I just learned how to put myself back together to the point that it just made me less afraid to open up because even if I do fall in love with the wrong person, even if my heart gets broken again, I'll be okay. And that I'll be okay part wasn't there before because the tidal wave would always just take over and then i forget myself loving someone else. So I think there's more There's more love songs. There's more happy moments amidst the Viva Las Toxicas energy.
1: So when you think about this record and this stage in your career... What are your ambitions or your goals?
0: Making my boys millionaires. The farm is still on there. For your dad? Founding an orphanage, yes. For, for your mom? Yes, the orphanage. In, or a school. It's, it might take different forms because the more things grow, the more I understand like the kind of impact I want to have isn't so much adding something that's going to perpetuate to that energy, but almost stopping before. So like working with families and maybe a school, like, something like that. I name it after my mom. And luckily, like, the third one on that list was always, like, impacting, like, a million people positively, which is crazy because the kind of feedback that I've been able to get in my career is just a lot of love and a lot of, like, oh, you did this for me, or this song got me through this, which is crazy. Grammys still, because I miss smoking weed. Because <laughs> I said I was going to quit weed until I won a Grammy a few years ago. You've held to that? I've held to that, man. Okay. Yeah, I've held to that. Peace. Horses, goats. Beach, lake. More time for myself too. More, like, just more of what is, to be honest. I'm really happy which is fucked to hear myself say that because it's really been difficult for me in the past to find any sort of peace and contentness because I was always scared of being content because you could say that that's like the worst enemy of ambition but I've learned to balance it, you know? Ambition's not a bad thing as long as I'm not a dick. Ambition's not a bad thing as long as I'm not a maniac and I can still balance that and consider myself my own friend so I'm not running myself into the ground.
1: What you do is eclectic and your vocal tone is interesting and unique unlike anything that anyone else is doing or has done. Were there people that were trying to push you in different directions or different boxes?
0: Yeah, of course. But truth resonates. It's nice too, because I ended up discovering that sometimes people just need to categorize. Like the way that the human brain like instinctively looks for faces and patterns. It's just natural for people to want to have some sort of like, you know, framework to be able to perceive something. Sometimes people just need it. So early on, I was like, well, it's not fucking this genre. It's not that genre. It's not this. But if people need an umbrella, I'm Tarantino. What genre are you? I'm Quentin Tarantino. That's the genre. If it's anything that could play, anything and everything that could play behind a Tarantino scene. Violent high art, romance. Okay. Bloody Valentine.
1: I know a lot of artists these days are selling off their catalog. this has been sort of a trend across the industry. Do you have any sort of strong feelings about... Owning your masters or owning your publishing or...
0: I've dabbled. I've sold like a few songs, but not the whole thing. Yeah, I believe in ownership, but I also believe in money like financial literacy and understanding money management and sometimes it makes sense. If you're going to work it right, yep. if you're going to make the same amount in 10 years, but you have the same amount liquid now and you know and understand investments and stocks and fucking real estate for example, something that's a little bit more secure, then it makes sense to make that decision and people can criticize all they want. A lot of times the audience has a lot to say or the bleachers have a lot to say and they're not the people dealing with it, but hey, I know there's people that are against it and people for it. I don't think it's the wrong thing to do if you're handling the money right. If you're just taking the check and blowing it, you're fucked. But if you're taking the check and then reinvesting in something that's going to make you more money than your songs would, why the fuck not? It's real easy to judge when you don't know somebody else's like past story or whole story or how broke they are if they need the money. I remember sitting down with someone that was like, listen, honestly, everybody gets fucked on their first deal. And this deal isn't even that fucked. But it's a norm, you know? It's a norm because you have to earn your stripes, cut your teeth, you know? It made me less afraid to get fucked especially because i knew it was kind of in my hands whether or not i got fucked like if i if i was gonna fail if i was gonna succeed it's gonna be on me
1: as personal as your records are are you able to go back and listen to them years later
0: yeah there's certain songs that took me a long time to be able to hear back and certain songs still get me a little soft like cotton candy cotton candy's a sneaker mm-hmm. you know
1: is it hard to perform and have to live in those moments again after you've exited them?
0: Sometimes, yeah. Especially when they're fresh. It's so hard to sing when you're about to cry. It's the hardest thing because it's just an apple in your throat while you're trying to get wind through. It sucks. But it's a really interesting moment when you finally start to see success because then... I'm crying because it hurts, but then all of a sudden I hear everyone in the room singing the song back, and then it's this like stark contrast of like, but look at your life. Look at what you've been able to do. Like, look at this connection. Look at life. And it's literally like screaming in front of your face. It's a fucked up yin and yang kind of moment to just feel that little window, and I'm right there in the pain and in the gratitude all at once. But there are songs that are like, same side I couldn't sing before without feeling the need to cry. And now I feel a little bit better, you know? Now that I'm able to get through it, all right.
1: Are there any parts of your personality or your professional life that you still think you need to improve and work on?
0: Yeah, letting things go. But I'm getting better at it. Criticisms don't tease me.
1: Do you like search your name on Twitter or any of that kind I of stuff? I do it,
0: well, I fuck for the album, yeah, because we're trying to you know, motivate content, so it's easier to do that if I can find things. But it's not the criticisms I get under my skin. It's not that. It's more so the, I, I admire my mom for this. She's able to do so many things and never expects a thank you. And I've come to realize that sometimes I do. It might be because I feel like I express that so often that when someone's been doing something for me or does something for me, I'm very fucking, I lavish people with how grateful I am because I just do, you know? And I realized that later in life that I was like, oh, when I don't get that back for something that I've done for someone, that bothers me. And as a boss and as like the breadwinner for the team or for like family, whatever the fuck, it's something that I had to get over. And my mom just taught me that she was like, you're never supposed to do anything with thank yous. Let God work through you and let it go. And so I'm getting better at that.
1: How do you negotiate the balance? Because it is very easy in your line of work to surrender your entire life to the process of making, promoting, marketing, touring, etc. cetera. How do you find time that's just for you?
0: I make myself my best friend. So I know if I'm like running low, if I'm getting two in my head, if I'm dead, little things. Someone would say that it's insane to go and cancel a flight and pay a penalty and book another one within 24 hours just because it's two hours later because someone booked the flight too early. If I'm dead and two hours of sleep is gonna make a difference of a full REM cycle for someone that's running on fumes, do it for yourself, you know? And it's not like I'm like spending crazy money on shit, like I'm pretty chill with my shit. So little decisions like that or blocking out time on the calendar and it being a hard no, regardless of what opportunity comes up, like things like that have helped me. I was lucky enough to always be empowered to just be myself. Whether it was at home or whether it was like professionally, I've been with people that have understood that I'm just me. And if my mom's not going to tell me what to wear and what to do and what to say, sure as shit, no one else is going to, you know? So I've always just been comfortable in myself in that way and just being me. However, I definitely learned... The bigger it gets, the more difficult it gets because the bigger teams get. And then by default, there's more chefs in the kitchen and shit can get a little bit, you know, complicated. And then Girls. the stakes are higher. And then the the joke of doing this as a woman is also just an added layer of complexity because either you don't give a fuck, but then you get criticized for being a bitch because that's the burden that we fucking carry, or you're too fucking nice and then you get walked over and it's a dance. You have to learn how to dance with like respect, the fucking boundaries so people don't fuck with you, but also being aware of that extra burden that we carry of getting those extra judgments, you know? So I've learned to have more decorum, which I think would, a lot of people would benefit. There's a lot of men that would benefit from it that just because they don't have boobs and a pussy, they're still a bitch, you know? They still have very thick fucking bitch-assness in them and they could benefit from having more more decorum and how they manage or how they execute uh, or whatever. But it's a new skill I've learned to have more decorum and to also not feel guilty about no being a full sentence more often than not.
1: What is the key to being a great manager?
0: I'm figuring it out still. I still learn, you know, but part of it is people learn their mistakes, you know. People make stupid decisions sometimes, but it doesn't make them stupid. It just makes the decision stupid. And if you remember that, then it's easier to deal with frustrations when things go wrong. And also, nothing in life is going to be perfect. And if you work with someone that does 80% of the time the right thing, that's a pretty good fucking stat. You know, and getting bent over the 20 percent that don't look right ain't it. And sometimes it'll just benefit you to keep the momentum going and keep it pushing forward. And also celebrating wins, which I had before the pandemic, I had to talk it out in therapy. I didn't realize that I would flip tables when shit went left. But when shit went right, it was so expected that I never even celebrated. Having this album release party was something they had to, they had to bend my arm backwards mm-hmm. to get me to do. Because it, to me, it didn't make sense because I was like, fuck, we're we celebrating. We're done that. I just, just finished the project. It's not out. We don't know how it's going to do. We don't know. And they were like, but that's irrelevant. How it does is irrelevant. It's the fact that you've been able to come here. You've been able to finish a piece of work that you're proud of, that you're happy of. So how it does is irrelevant to it. And there's also a fucking massive team that's been able to get me here too. And it's in everyone's best interest to stop and take notice of the blessing that it is to live off of something creative. Live off of, you know, it's just, it's insane to live off of art and be a working musician and have teams. It's crazy. And it was something that I had to learn. So celebrating wins, learning to incorporate positivity into it, not always expecting perfection, but being happy when shit comes out right. Leaning into happiness more often, understanding that everyone's human and leading with love and not being afraid to say no. But say no with the also really helps.
1: Jesse Reyes' story is what happens when incredible natural talent is met with equally hard work and persistence. Throughout her life, Reyes has worked tirelessly to support herself and the pursuit of her musical career. Even when it seemed like it may never happen, or industry gatekeepers with malevolent motives stood in her way, Reyes just continued to put one foot in front of the other. And with her unique ability to make deeply personal music that resonates to a broad and diverse audience, it was only a matter of time before she broke through to the global spotlight. With her new album, Yesi, out now, and much more to come, it's safe to say that this is just the first chapter in a much longer tale. Big thanks to our sponsors at Shopify. If you're looking to start your own online store, check out shopify.com slash ideas and become your own boss today.